All right. <clears throat> I'm just going to bring the Kleenex box over here. We're just going to save, cut out the middleman. Acts chapter 1, if you guys have a Bible this evening. Acts chapter 1. And this evening we're going to be talking about, if you've got to kind of give this a message, a title, it's just really the in-between. I kind of call it the in-between. So it's something that just in my own kind of personal studies, again, kind of like Sunday morning, we don't really have a series we're going through or anything like that right now. Um, and so this kind of struck me as interesting. Um, and so I kind of put some thoughts down on this and just wanted to kind of walk through this this evening. So we'll see. Um, most likely we'll get through all the content, but if not, that's fine. We'll just come back to it. Um, I've been feeling like I'm going to sneeze for the last like 20 minutes. So if I do sneeze, I apologize. Whew. For those that are listening to this on the recording, I'm really sorry. Whew. That's just one of those days. All right. I should have took a Benadryl before church and I forgot to do it. All right. So Acts chapter 1. And uh, we're going to look at what, again, some might call the time in between. Okay, the time in between. And we'll understand what we mean in a moment. So Acts chapter 1, look at verse 1, and we'll read through verse 3. The former treaties made, or have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, unto the day in which he was taken up. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive, after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom. And so I want to talk about in those first three verses, a timeline in the life of Christ that doesn't get a lot of attention. A timeline in the life of Christ that doesn't get a lot of uh, really kind of attention to the passage or to what happens here. First, we have to notice the opening of the book. And we know this is a familiar uh, phrase to us that we understand from our study in the Gospel of Luke. Um, Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and he's writing this book to who? So if you remember our Luke study, this is the same idea. It tells us in verse 1, who's he writing this to? Theophilus, okay? And we discovered back in that study that he most likely was a someone of good or high importance in the Roman Empire. Uh, most likely this wasn't his name. It could have been his title. Uh, but basically this was somebody of great importance. And he's writing to them. And he wrote his gospel with that same idea. And the idea is he's giving an historical account of the things of Christ. That was the whole point of the Gospel of Luke. Giving a historical account or record of events of the life of Christ. Now in Acts, he starts off with the same idea. He's going to continue to teach about the things that Christ has done. And he says this in verse 1. Of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. So again, we say he began to do these things. The book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles, is the continuation of the ministry of Christ. It's the continuation of what he began to do in the Gospels. And so Luke says that he wrote in his Gospel the things that Christ said and did, which refers to his earthly ministry. But now he is saying that the same confidence that he wrote his gospel with, he is writing the second book, the book of Acts, or the continuance of the work of Christ through his apostles and through the Holy Spirit. And that's why he starts off that way even in verse 2. Some have considered the book of Acts the fifth gospel. So some have even said this is like the fifth gospel, or the continuation 
of the Gospels and all that we see. Now, we understand, and we've said this many, many times, but it always bears repeating, the book of Acts contains a transition period. There's things that happen in the book of Acts that it was the kind of finalizing of the Old Testament covenant and the beginning of the church. The old covenant is coming to a close. The new covenant is beginning with the church and the apostles. And so here we see that transition taking place. But there's still many, many things that happen in the book of Acts that you read about happening in the Gospels. Same types of acts, same types of activity of the church, same message as well. So what I want to do tonight is I want to look into the time in between the resurrection and the ascension. The resurrection and the ascension. And so we also uh, see an example of some of the things that happened during this time in John uh, chapter 20 and verse 20, or chapter 20 and chapter 21. Uh, This is where Jesus comes to his disciples. Um, And so when I think about this period of time, I don't know that I've ever really wrote a, a lesson or a message on this period of time. Why did Jesus spend 40 days following his resurrection before he ascended? And this is time period that really we don't have a ton of information about. We have a little bit of. And I want to unpack that a little bit tonight. Uh, John wrote in John chapter 21, verse 25, about being unable to write down all that Jesus did. Now, when we hear that, we always think about what he did on earth during his three and a half years of earthly ministry. We think, oh, that's what John was referring to. John was saying, if we try to tell you all the things that Jesus did in three and a half years, we could not fit it in a volume of a writing. But I don't believe that's all that John was referring to. I think John was saying everything from his birth all the way through to his ascension. He's saying there's things that happened that we could never contain all of this in a writing. We can never tell you all the things. And so this 40-day period of time is very much a part of that. And so I don't know about you, but I don't know if you ever sat back and thought about this time period. Like, like what did Jesus do for 40 days after his resurrection before his ascension? So we're going to look at a couple of things we do see in Scripture that Jesus did. Uh, we referenced one of them just kind of briefly a moment ago. But I want to kind of walk through this. The first question we have to kind of ask ourselves is, why did Jesus wait to ascend? Why did Jesus wait to ascend? So let me ask it this way. When Jesus left heaven to come to earth, what did he leave behind? What did Jesus leave when he left heaven to come to earth? He's still God, right? He's still very much God. Never stopped being God. Always was deity. Now we know what he became. He took on flesh. And we talk about the things that he had to take on to himself, right? Getting tired, getting hungry, having to sleep. Things that Jesus would have never done before he took on flesh. But what did Jesus give up to come to earth? And when he left heaven, what did he leave behind? What, Kelsey? It's a small group. We got to talk a little louder. So it's kind of, what did you say? Okay, yes, that's, see, that's a good answer. Nice and loud next time. Okay, he left the father. We know he still had a relationship with the father, but he's not currently sitting next to the father, right? Sandra? Okay, he left the absence of sin. That's a great point. There's no sin in heaven. So he left perfection and came to a world that is the opposite of perfection, right? Fallen, broken in sin, sin everywhere, okay? Now we know he didn't become sin in the incarnation because he was sinless in his flesh. He did not have a sin nature, but he took on sin at the cross, 
right? So he left the father, that physical relationship as far as the father's right here. He left the absence of sin. What else did he leave behind? Sure. Yep. <clears throat> Perceived visible glory. Yeah. Right. The, right. That's a great point. He left his revealed glory, right? Uh, some even say the Shekinah glory, right? The glory of God. He, he hindered that. He, he limited that when he came to earth. And so he left that. He left that up in heaven as far as it was revealed in heaven, being worshipped fully as God, comes to earth, not being worshipped fully as God, right? Any other ideas of what he left behind in heaven? Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of these. What were we going to say? Okay, angels. See, it's just like Kelsey. Say it louder. Okay. So angels. And what were those angels doing? Praising God. Also, instantly obedient. If Jesus asked an angel to do something as God, what did that angel do? Exactly what he said. When Jesus came to earth and told the disciples, do this, what did they do? Not that. Often they would, right? Do you ever get blown away by the number of times Jesus heals someone and says, hey, don't tell anybody. Just don't tell anyone. Go back to the, te- to the synagogue. Go back to the temple, whatever. Do your thing with the priest, but let's just don't tell anyone. And what does the next verses usually say? And they went out and told everyone. The whole region heard about this whole thing. Yeah, we would all have a hard time because here's the reason. We obey what we understand, right? Uh, Think about raising children or when you were a child. How many times will kids look at a parent and say, well, I don't have to do that because in their mind, they're like, I don't understand why I have to do that. I don't understand why I can't do this and you're telling me I can't. We as human beings before God are the exact same way. God says, do this or don't do that. And we look at God and go, if I understand why I should or shouldn't, I'm going to obey. But if I don't understand, I'm going to kind of do what I want. Or I'm just going to question you and question you and question you. Now, God welcomes those questions. And if I have to suggest anything, I would say, always question what God is asking you to do with the intent to obey it. Don't question it and then go out and do what you want or don't just ignore God and go do what you want to do. Questions are better than disobedience, okay? But as you're asking questions of God, have a heart of obedience. Lord, I want to do this. Just give me wisdom on how to do it. Maybe that's a better way to say it. So he left all of this behind. So here's my point in all of that. He goes through everything he goes through, all the human limitations, everything he experiences, hunger, tiredness, uh, deceit, sin, right? All the mockery, three and a half years of being threatened, almost killed, right? All the things he went through. He finally gets to the cross. He dies on the cross. He's buried in the tomb. He rises again, okay? What would be, if you were Jesus, what would be your first desire after you've resurrected from the dead? Where would you want to go? I'd want to go back to the Father, I don't want to go back to heaven. I don't want to go back to just being in the presence of the Father. And yet Jesus decided 40 days he would spend longer in this place. 
all the greatness of heaven, all the glory of heaven. And he says, no, I'm going to spend 40 days down here. And the question you have to ask is, why? Why spend 40 more days on this planet? And some will say, well, so he could be seen by people. So people knew he really resurrected. How many days do you think minimum would take for Jesus to resurrect, walk around Jerusalem, and people to go, hey, that's Jesus? You could do it in a week. Let's say, let's be crazy and say seven days, right? For seven days, if Jesus every day went out to Jerusalem and just walked around, do you think the word would get out? Wow, that's Jesus. I'm going to go tell somebody, right? And so Jesus decided to spend 40 days when he didn't really have to. Yeah, so we'll talk a little bit about that, but I want to be careful we don't get too far into that. So I want to give you a couple reasons why I think Acts says, because we're going to talk about what Julie just said a little bit, that 40 is a number of importance, right, in Scripture. Uh, But I think there's two things that Acts tells us that I think give us a little bit clearer answer to that, okay? So the first thing we see, and if you want to take notes, you can jot this down. I don't have a handout, unfortunately. So, um, but the first thing I want to see is in Acts 1-3. So in Acts 1-3, it says here, To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion. And the passion is what? What do we mean by the passion? Hmm? The suffering. Right. What does the suffering refer to? Right. So the movie, The Passion of the Christ, that was wildly popular, it's referring to the cross, to the crucifixion. That word is referring to what Christ endured for us, his suffering that he went through. So he says here, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So there's a key right there. We need to kind of, if you circle in your Bible or highlight in your Bible or whatever, that's the key. Why did Jesus spend 40 days on earth after his resurrection? To train his disciples, to train his disciples, to continue maybe to train his disciples. And he does this by speaking of the things of the kingdom. Now in the Bible, there are three types of kingdoms in the New Testament specifically. When you hear the word kingdom, you have to kind of stop and go, okay, what aspect of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven are we talking about here? So there's three basic types. The one type of kingdom is called the millennial kingdom. Okay, the millennial kingdom. This we believe as a church. Some don't believe this, by the way. There's, this is one of those like debated aspects of end times. We believe as a church that the millennial kingdom is a time when Christ will establish a kingdom on earth for 1,000 years following the tribulation and the battle of Armageddon in the future. So in the future, all the things are unfolding in Revelation. When it talks about the millennial kingdom, a kingdom of a thousand years, we believe that's a literal kingdom of a literal thousand years where Jesus will establish that kingdom on earth. Okay? So that's one of the ways kingdom is used. It's literally referring to this future physical kingdom. Some would argue there is no physical kingdom. There's no literal thousand years. It's just a figurative use of the word. We would disagree with that. Okay? That's one of the ways kingdom is used. The other two ways would be kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. So these two are used interchangeably by Christ. So kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is used interchangeably by Christ. These refer to the rule and reign of God over creation. Also, any who enter into salvation are a part of this kingdom. You might call this a spiritual kingdom. 
kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, is referring to a spiritual kingdom when used in the understanding of salvation, okay? Spiritual aspects. So right now, you and I are citizens of the kingdom of God. Not in a literal sense, because we're not literally in heaven with him, but spiritually, Paul says we're already residents of his kingdom. We're already there, right? So that's the idea here. Millennial kingdom, spiritual kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. So when they say this, when, when Jesus says this to the disciples, or Luke records that this is what was communicated to the, gospel, to, to the apostles, I believe he's referring to a certain aspect of this kingdom. Uh, quick note here. Uh, only Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. Uh, the other references are kingdom of God. So only Matthew as far as Matthew and his gospel, uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. He uses it 32 times. A couple references to this idea of kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven uh, would be John 3, 5 through 7. And then again, Matthew 19, 23 and 24. So John 3, 5 through 7. And Matthew 19, 23 through 24. So we see this reference here of these ideas of the kingdom. So again, I believe this is the kingdom that Jesus was speaking about to the disciples, not the millennial kingdom, but the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the spiritual kingdom. And here's why I would think that. You can disagree, that's totally fine, but this is why I would think that. The reason I believe that this is not the millennial kingdom is due to the question the disciples ask about when Jesus will establish his earthly kingdom. We see this if you read on. Um... Uh, verse 6, I believe, yes. So he says here in Acts 1, 6, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, "If or Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, but you shall receive power. And he goes on from there. So I think of it this way. Jesus says he's teaching them of the kingdom. Some time goes on. They ask a question about what kind of kingdom? Spiritual or literal on earth kingdom? What kind of kingdom do they ask? Are you going to establish this kingdom? I believe they're asking about a literal kingdom. Are you going to give a literal kingdom to Israel? Are you going to really establish this rule and reign? So their mind went to physical. Okay, now you're going to do this thing where you build the kingdom. What is Jesus' response? Yeah, he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons of when that will happen. So that tells me the kingdom he's been teaching them about is not the literal kingdom, although obviously it is in Scripture, and they're going to receive revelation about that through not only Paul's writings, but John's writings and revelation and so on. But I believe he's teaching them about the current spiritual kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. And their minds went to the physical like our minds always do, right? Uh, Nicodemus, well, how can a man be born a second time? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? Literal. The woman at the well, how are you going to draw water? What water are you talking about? Can I have some of this water? Literal water. So we tend to go to the literal, but I believe Jesus was teaching them not about the literal kingdom that he will establish on earth. By the way, he will establish a kingdom on earth, but I believe he's talking more about the spiritual response or spiritual kingdom because Jesus' response is for them not to worry about that kingdom. That's basically what he says. Don't worry about that yet. Don't, don't worry about that. Not that their question was wrong, because obviously Christ opened their minds to the kingdom, the understanding of the kingdom. 
but to be active in fulfilling the Great Commission or adding to the kingdom now. That was the issue. It wasn't that their question was wrong. It was, time out. You're asking me this question. Your mind's in the wrong place. Don't think about that kingdom. Think about this kingdom. Think about this kingdom. Warren Worsby, in his commentary, I love what he said here about this reference. He said, the important thing is not to be too curious about the future, but to be busy in the present. Sharing the message of God's spiritual kingdom. This is another emphasis in the book of Acts. So a side note to the book of Acts that I think is kind of interesting. The book of Acts opens with Jesus teaching on the kingdom in Jerusalem. Right? That's where he is. And it ends with Paul teaching on the kingdom in the city of Rome in Acts 28.31. So we see these bookends to the book of Acts. Jesus opens teaching about the kingdom. Paul ends teaching about the kingdom. So we see this kind of throughout the book of Acts. And again, the emphasis is on this spiritual kingdom that God is establishing, that God is doing this great work. Now, some will look at this and go, nope, that's the literal kingdom. I don't see how that meshes with Jesus' response to their question about a literal kingdom. I don't see that connecting. So, um, next, let's see, do we have time? Oh, yeah. We'll finish up after this point, maybe. Um, so, he's training his disciples. And well, how is he doing that so far? He's teaching them about the things of the kingdom, right? He's also training his disciples by spending time with them. By spending time with them. So, Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. It says this. Again, we read it already, but we'll read 3 and 4. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. What's the promise that's coming? Holy Spirit. Have they received any kind of the Spirit to this point? Yes. In John, Jesus breathed on them the Holy Spirit, right? We know that they had an act of the Spirit being upon them when they went out and they, he sent them out to do all those works, remember? He put them in pairs, Matthew 10, sent them out to do works, and they had all the authority given to them to do these things. How did they have authority to cast out demons? Because of the Spirit. Now, it wasn't spelled out that way, but that's how Jesus gave them that power to do that. But what Jesus is talking about is not a momentary filling of the Spirit for a task or purpose. It's an indwelling of the Spirit. And we talked about this during our Holy Spirit series. That this is an indwelling of the Spirit. So they're supposed to wait for this indwelling. Now, Acts 1.8, now they've received the power to go out and be these witnesses that they've been called to be. But I want to emphasize here that Jesus is spending time with them. They were assembled together and he commanded them. He went to them and showed them these proofs in person. John 20 and 21, he went to them. He ate with them, right? He showed his body to them. He's training them by spending time with them. I believe that not only was he training and preparing them with instruction, meaning verbally, I also believe he was spending time with them to disciple them through experience. This was the model of Jesus in the Gospels. He would teach them and also demonstrate that teaching in practice, sometimes to their, to their failure, right? He feeds 5,000, does this great work. Here comes another group a little while later. They don't have the food to feed them. What do the disciples do? We have no way to feed these guys. How are we going to feed these guys? I just did this with 5,000 people or more, and you're already doubting me. Right? He taught them about faith, then he demonstrated faith before them. So again, I believe he's modeling this idea still. Luke uses a very interesting phrase 
in uh, these verses we just read, he says that Jesus showed them many infallible proofs to strengthen their faith, I believe. Whatever doubts the disciples had, and again, Thomas wasn't the only one, those doubts have been erased. The word infallible here is also understood as convincing. If you have a different translation, it might say convincing proofs. The original Greek word is used only here. So I find that kind of interesting. The only time in Scripture we read this word in the Greek is this one time. And it's a very unique word. It actually means that which causes something to be confirmed or verified in a decisive way. So when Luke says he showed them infallible proofs, it was Luke's way of saying, and again, remember, stop for a second. What's the point of Luke writing this? This is why it's kind of important to go back to the beginning of the the chapter and go, who is he writing to? Why is he writing this? What's he writing about? So why is Luke writing this? To give a what kind of an account to the life and ministry of Christ? Historical. So what's the best way to give a historical account? To give convincing proofs. This is evidence that can't be denied. Basically, when they understood this word in the Greek language, it meant it would hold up in court. This was evidence that was verified proof that you could bring it into a courtroom and they would go, this stands. We trust this. So again, it's amazing how Luke is writing this and saying, no, these things didn't just happen. I'm showing you there's proofs. And that's why when people deny the resurrection of Christ and they'll say the apostles hid the body and stole the body and all these things. How is it the disciples, all of them, except for Judas who hung himself, how is it they all died a martyr's death? How is it they all chose to let themselves be killed for Christ because they saw convincing proof? It wasn't a shot in the dark. It wasn't a blind faith. It was, I saw him. I touched his body. I saw the wounds. I was with him. And so to me, when you see this, why did Jesus spend 40 days when he a week would have done or a day would have done? Because he was training his disciples. He was teaching them the things of the kingdom and he was spending time with them. Christ ate with them, invited them to touch his wounds, demonstrating he was truly risen from the dead. This was the heart of the apostolic message at the time and that Christ rose or died and rose again. What was the call of the apostles? Trust in Christ who died and rose again. And where did they get that from? Because Jesus trained them. He spent time with them. And I want to kind of wrap it up here. I know we're a little early, but I don't want to get into the next part and rush through that. But I do want to end with this. I hope you understand that he's doing the same thing for us. That Jesus is training us every single time we open the word of God. He's training us by teaching us the things of the kingdom. How's he doing that? By teaching us our role in the kingdom as disciple makers, evangelists. By teaching us our role in the kingdom, by ministering to his church, by trusting him as our our king and our Lord. But he's also training us by being with us, spending time with us. I mean, there's nothing greater than spending time with Jesus and being in his word and being before him in prayer, trusting him, asking him, getting insight from him. But then here's the cool thing. You know why Jesus doesn't need to give you physical convincing proof? Because we have a historical record of all the infallible proofs we need. That right here, this copy is historically accurate enough that it would hold up in court in its original time and writing. And so I don't need Jesus to reprove to me he's really resurrected. I don't need Jesus to re-show me he can do a miracle. I have historical documentation that's trustworthy and has weight and value. 
And it's one we run to and we find training. So that, guess what? Julie mentioned it with her praise that she was preparing for that time with family. We, we train up with Christ so that when we go out into the battlefield or the mission field, by the way, they're one and the same. That mission field is, is amazing that God has planted us here, but it's a battlefield. And as we train up with Christ, allowing him to teach us the things of the kingdom, and then we spend time with him, we go out into this world and guess what? We are ready. We could never stand before God and go, well, you just didn't give me enough to make me prepared. I just wasn't prepared. I remember when I was in college, I used to always kind of want to use that excuse. Well, you know, the professor really didn't go over the material enough to make me prepare for the test. No, he did. I maybe wasn't paying attention, right? I maybe fell asleep a few times, but I wasn't really engaging. But it wasn't the professor's fault. It was my fault. Jesus has given us all the training we need, and we just need to give ourselves to it and say, no, I'm ready. And I'm ready to go out into this field and serve you because you've trained me, you've taught me, and you've spent time with me. And so we're going to pick this up next week. I hope, again, I hope it's an encouragement to you. I don't know if you've really ever sat back and thought through, um, and we will get to that 40-day thing next week, but um, if you've ever sat back and thought through this idea of why did Jesus spend 40 days on earth, uh, I don't know about you, but I've never really heard much teaching on this time period. Um, I want to warn you too, sometimes people will take small amounts of things in Scripture like this and really elaborate them, really make all these wild guesses and ideas. I want to look at scripture and say, what do we see from scripture? He taught them of the kingdom and he spent time with them. That's the keys that we can draw from this text. Next week, we'll talk about how it demonstrated God's will. So we'll move through that. So any questions, comments, or thoughts before we dismiss with a word of prayer? Hmm. Sure, yeah. That's a really good point. Right. Yeah. You just want to be with them all the time. Or 38. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's amazing to think about that. How did they value that time? Um, I, w- I w- you got my mind on something. I'm wondering. I, I can't recall. I can't recall that he told them specifically 40 days I'd be with you. I don't think. Right. I think it says he refers to the fact that, you know, a little while I'll be with you, then I won't be with you, and then I'm going to go to the Father. So this is kind of a loose understanding there. But I think what you're hitting on there is, really we should be doing that every single day with the blessings God has given us with the people in our lives. We should be looking at every single day saying, this could be the last day I spend with this person or whether it be family or friends or ministry or whatever. And so we should be valuing it as though that, because that clock is ticking down. We don't know 
what, how many days we started with. If they knew 40, they could count down. We don't know how many days we have. So we should be taking every day and saying, no, this is a passion or this is a time I need to invest in because it's, it's a pursuit of just enjoying this moment for God's glory. So yeah, great point. Absolutely. Any other uh, comments, questions, or thoughts before we dismiss in prayer? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that was the problem when Jesus came. He didn't fit. He fit the biblical account of the Messiah, but he didn't fit the aspects because they pulled the, the accounts of the Messiah out of the Old Testament that were the ruler, the king, you know, which he will be in his second coming, but they expected that to all be in the first coming. And so the problem was, okay, yeah, we see these things, but we don't see these things. So you're not the Messiah because you haven't overthrown the Romans. You haven't done these things. So very much so they were focused on a physical, we want this king to set us free and establish our kingdom. So I, I yeah, I agree hundred percent. I think that's what the Jews today are looking for. They want that Messiah. Right. Trying to establish that there's two kingdoms he's talking about. That there's two aspects of this that the Old Testament, and that's part of the problem is the Old Testament because it's prophecy. We don't see as clearly as we do in the person of Christ. So yeah, the Old Testament gives us hints and pieces and all of this. And there's tons of prophecies of Christ, but it's easy to take all these prophecies and construe even a misunderstanding of who Christ is going to be if you don't really understand what these prophecies mean. So when Jesus comes and he tells us, well, that means this and that means this, now he's the, the lens that we see all these prophecies through. We don't look through the prophecies to Christ. We look back through Christ to the prophecies because that's how we're going to keep them in check and make sure we're not misapplying Scripture or misunderstanding what God revealed. Because, I mean, Jesus is the greatest demonstration of the Father and of grace and of truth. And so when we see that, we need to look at him that way. Or those prophecies through him that way, I should say. No, great point. Anyone else? All right. Well, let's go ahead and pray. And then we'll let you guys be dismissed. Father, we thank you for this evening. Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy that meets us here. And Father, I just thank you for these that are able to be here tonight, Lord. I just uh, praise you for their willingness to come and, and just to be before your word and to receive what you have for them, Lord. I pray that as only you can, you would strengthen uh, them and, and myself and our faith. Lord, thank you for teaching us what we need to know. Thank you for your word. Thank you for spending time with us. Lord, I know I can be very uh, stubborn and hard-headed and I don't listen. Lord, you teach me the same lesson multiple times, I feel as though. And, and it's just hard for me to get those things sometimes because I get in my own way. But I'm so thankful that you're patient with us, as we talked about this morning, that you endure with us for your glory and our blessing. And so I pray that we would take this small window of time, these 40 days, and we would desire to understand uh, that there is value in that because you wanted to spend time with us and teach us, equipping us for what we need. Help us to see that today, that you offer that to us through the word and through prayer. May we not um, neglect that time, but value that time because it prepares us to go out into our day, to go out into our world, to make a difference 
for you. Father, we love you. We thank you for all of this, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.